another episode of Splash Considerations. My name is Justice De Los Santos, as always. And as you may have guessed by the title of this episode, we're not talking baseball this week. We're talking hoops. This is the first basketball-centric episode of this series. We're going to have plenty more down the line throughout the playoffs and the offseason as well. And here to kick things off with me is the man whose beard would make James Harden himself jealous, Sandeep Chandok. Sandeep, welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on, Justice? Thanks for having me. And uh, rest in peace, Kobe, man. Well, speaking of Kobe, I wanted to, that's where I wanted to start this episode. It's August 23rd. As many basketball fans know, it is Kobe Bryant's birthday. He would have been 42 years young. I do want to start off by asking, what is your favorite memory of Kobe, basketball or otherwise? It's funny because I was actually going to, I was going to text you and be like, hey, let's, let's talk about Kobe a little bit if you don't mind. And I was going to ask the same question. You just asked me, what's your favorite memory? So glad you, uh, glad you asked this, but it's you know the thing is it's tough man with Kobe because he's a guy that got me into hoops my all-time favorite player you know I got him my backdrop right here as you can see um for the for those you can't see I have a big Kobe poster right behind my shoulder um man there's there's a few that come to mind and you know one is a the game winner against Phoenix you know I think about the game winner against uh against the heat which is the poster i have where he hit the buzzer beater over Dwayne wade you know the matt barnes pump fake there's just there's so many things with kobe honestly i i can't pick one man what about you i feel like for me when i think of kobe it i definitely gravitate to his work ethic those are that's kind of how i came into like the aura of kobe bryant so my favorite memories revolve around like the litany of stories that were told and the one in particular that I always gravitate to is when he was with Team USA, I believe it was uh, in 2012. And there's a story of when uh, the trainer actually posted on Reddit, I think it actually got deleted, but there's an old, an old archived article about how this trainer, he got called up by Kobe about three in the morning, gets down to the gym at like five o'clock, Kobe's already drenched in sweat. They work out for like an hour and a half, two hours. Trainer goes back upstairs or back to the hotel, sleeps goes back to the gym at like 11 when there was like normal people practice, like for normal people times. And, people. <laughs> he's, and then he's like, he's, he's talking to Kobe. He's like, when'd you eventually leave? And he was like, no, I just got done. I, I just got finished. I needed to make my 800 shots. <laughs> yeah. So, man, see, yeah. Those stories are definitely the best. I agree. Like since Kobe passes, there's been so many great stories that we've never heard before, you know, both from, you know, you hear from players, from coaches, from trainers. You know, I remember reading an article that, Kobe in the summer this one summer he would um I think he went to UC Irvine to practice and one of the athletic trainers from campus would be the one to open the gym up for him help him out in the weight room and put up shots and they just spent every single day together when Kobe was training and when the Lakers won the championship that year I think it might have been I think it might have been 2010 Kobe Kobe asked him um what his ring size was. And he's like, nah, man, like I, I can't accept that. You know, like I, I just wanted to help you out of the, you know, the kindness of my, my heart and whatnot. And I think Kobe ended up sending him a championship ring still. And they even became, came to the point where they were very close with each other. They met each other's families and that just shows you the type of co- person Kobe was. Yeah. I feel like if you talk to anybody that's had their, like that's been firmly entrenched in the basketball community, whether that just be the casual fan, whether that be players, coaches, front office executives, staff, like if like everybody that Kobe touched, it's like, I feel like everybody within the community at large has a story. 
And today during the games, there was no shortage of tributes that uh, throughout the day. Obviously, Nike drops uh, that commercial that had me crying at eight in the morning. I tried, I put off watching that commercial for like five hours because I knew that I was going to cry. And then I, I feel wa- that I watched yeah, it. I think it's so hard to watch those things. It's so hard. And I think I watched it in the middle. In one of the commercial breaks during the Dallas Clippers game. And I was like, Oh, the waterworks are coming, <laughs> especially with like Kendrick narrating it. That was when it like, I actually didn't know it was Kendrick narrating it first. Cause the first tweet I saw, it didn't like make, like make reference of him. And then when I saw it was Kendrick, I was like, man, this just hit me like a little more, a little harder because of that yeah the commercial was dope i didn't know it was kendrick either i think until someone someone tweeted about it but what really got me was uh vanessa's ig post and yeah. when i was when i when i saw the line where she she said something along the lines of it should have been me i just i started tearing up and i was like that's so sad yeah it feels like i i kind of i guess the way that i can say it is i try to avoid thinking like too deeply into it i try to like like I'll think of like Kobe from time to time, but I try to kind of avoid like taking a complete step back and like reflecting on it because then if I do that, I'll just like, because I just get so like emotional just because like for me, as I was referencing the, the work mentality, the work ethic, the mama mentality aspect of it, that was a driving force for me, like as I've kind of come of age. And so to like see him or to have him be gone, it just feels like, like, I feel like I'd speak for both of us, just like a huge part of us just kind of like ripped away. Yeah, 100%, man. I'm, I'm on the same boat as you where I try not to think too deeply into it. You know, I just try to remember more of the positive aspects of Kobe and it still still seems surreal as everyone continues to say. You know, um, there's been times where, there's been a couple times where I've wanted, I've wanted to go to YouTube and watch Michael Jordan's speech of him um, at the memorial. But I, I stay away just because I know it's going to hit me super tough. Like that Jordan speech was just, I remember watching it when it happened live and just seeing Jordan, who's, who was Kobe's idol and Kobe's big brother, you know, and then hearing Jordan say everything he did about Kobe and how much they actually spoke and kept in touch was just like, yeah, like I really want to watch it just because of how great of a speech it was, but I don't because I know what's going to come out of it. Yeah. And in terms of the the positive that you mentioned, you mentioned how there's been so many different stories to come out of it. And you had a lot of people today in particular who were paying homage to him. You had uh, Jason Tatum wearing the purple elbow band as he uh, swept uh, the 76ers. We'll get into that uh, later in the show. You had the Kobe and Gigi insignia that was on those electronic boards on the baseline uh, pretty much for every game. But I think you'll agree with me when I say the person who paid the biggest tribute to Kobe, not necessarily through gear or through like a written letter or anything but the way that he carried himself on the court was none other than the 21 year old wonderkin from Slovenia Luka Doncic now I don't like to get too sensational I try to take a step back I don't like to try to get too wrapped up in the moment but I think it's safe to say we just witnessed this afternoon one of the greatest postseason games of all time and one of the greatest individual playoff performances of all time on a sore ankle no Kristaps Porzingis in the lineup. Luka wills them from a 21-point deficit. Hits the game-winning step-back three over Reggie Bobby Schmerta Jackson, <laughs> <Bobby Shmurda> Jackson <laughs> to get the win, tie up the series at 2-2 each. In just his fourth NBA playoff game, 43 points, 
17 rebounds, 13 assists, more assists than Paul George had points. We'll get into that in a second. But <laughs> where do we even kind of begin with this performance? Like, I've been kind of trying to think of, like, places to, like, go in in particular. But I don't want to, like, pigeonhole us. Like, Sandy, where do we even begin with this performance? I think we have to get a little, a little sensational here because, you know, think about things you just said. I mean, the guy's only 21 years old. It's only his fourth playoff game. You know, in his in his playoff debut, he made he's recorded the most points ever by anyone in their in their playoff debut, and you know to be putting up those kind of numbers in a game like this, your your team is down two one. You're missing your, you know, the Robin to your Batman, and you're playing against a team that's one of the best in the league and one that many are considering the favorite to win the championship. You know, and at the position that Luca plays. He's facing defenders like Kawhi and Paul George, who are two of the top perimeter defenders in the league, you know, and that, I mean, that game winner, man, like, you know, I think the biggest thing that I I looked at was not, you know, aside from the shot is that Kawhi, man, Kawhi has to do a better job of, of fighting over that screen. You know, you're on Luka Doncic for a reason. It's not because, you, the goal is to get you switched off of him. You're supposed to be on him. You got to do whatever you got to do to get over that screen. If that ball doesn't go into Luca because you and another defender both double team him and it goes to somebody else and you lose like that, so be it. But Luca is going to the ball for a reason. He wants to be the guy with the ball in his hands. He wants to take the final shot. And it seemed like Kawhi just didn't make a good enough effort to fight the screen. And then your boy Bobby Schmurda ends up on him, and that was barbecue chicken. Yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was Maxi Kleba who Reggie Jackson was initially on before they switched, and I was kind of I watched the like I was just looking like zeroing in on Reggie Jackson and Kawhi and just like the position they were in when they did switch, it felt like they would have gave it would have given Luka that potential outlet to Paxton Kleba, but as you mentioned, I feel like Luka had absolutely no intention <laughs> of passing off to Maxi or whoever else. Uh, was on the floor at that point in time. And I think for me, one of the the biggest takeaways, not only from the shot, not only from this game, but from this four-game series as a whole, I've been tweeting this out like constantly. It's just the concept that Luka ain't a sucker and the Mavericks as a whole, like they haven't gotten punked in this series as a whole because I think one of the the biggest things with heading to the series was, as you alluded to, it would be like Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, all these dudes that can get thrown to Luca, rough him up. And you even saw with uh, Montrez Harrell when he had, had some choice words for him in game three that I, I feel like there was an element of them trying to like punk him in a second. And just because he is this rookie and we do know the reputation of players coming over from Europe and having this reputation as being soft. But Luca's been about this action since he was a teenager. And it's, I, I feel a, like it shouldn't be surprising. I feel like I should have like. Right, yeah, I was just about to say. Yeah, like, I feel like in retrospect, I should have been like, Luca's not going to, like, falter under this moment. But just being able to see it and have those thoughts come to fruition and be like, yeah, Luca is actually more prepared for this than probably any other 21-year-old on the planet. Just to see it actually happening in real time, it's, it's just been amazing to watch. I feel like that's the only real way you can put it. It's been amazing to watch. I think it's still, it's still um, surreal because Luca is just 21. But I think what everyone needs to remember is that, like you said, he's been doing this since he was a teenager. And 
this wasn't high school ball or college ball. Luca was playing professional basketball, uh, arguably the second best professional league in the world. And he's playing against grown ass men, you know, guys who are already grown into their bodies and, you know, six uh, guys who are all like six, five and up, you know, and these guys have been playing basketball their whole lives. They're, they're not like the kids who grow up here who also are going to school and then, and then they start playing basketball seriously once they get into like high school with AU, like these guys maybe finish school and then they're playing professional basketball right away. And Luca 18 was a league MVP. He won a, a championship and he won the finals MVP for the, for the Euro league. So while it is, you know, it's crazy that he's doing many things at the age of 21 and just his second year in the NBA, he's been doing this for three years now. So I think we need, people just got to keep that in mind. You know, nothing he sh- he's doing should be that surprising. And in the same way that the way that Luca has handled himself throughout these first four games, having this cool, calm, collected demeanor and having nothing really phase him, I really feel like that's trickled down to the rest of this Dallas roster because as I mentioned, like Dallas was down by 21 points at like midway through the second quarter. And they didn't, and for a lot of teams, for a lot of playoff teams, you go down by 21 and you're thinking, all right, like we're just gonna have to pack it up and move on to the next game. You've seen it uh, with the uh, Denver Nuggets in games two and three in particular, where they went down big. And then you had this feeling that, yeah, they have the offensive power to potentially get back in this game. But in terms of, kind of having that dog and having that fight, you didn't really have that feeling. Even as the Mavericks went down big, there was never that feeling that this game is really over. And I feel like that was a product of how they performed in game one, how they performed in game two, how they performed in game three, particularly in game three when Luka went down. So in the same way that Luka has kind of proven himself to be this kid that you can't really punk, I feel like the Mavericks as a whole have kind of embodied that mentality in the same way that, uh, Kawhi last year with the Raptors it's like they kind of embodied his spirit as like it's all business or if you look to Miami where it's like they've really embodied like Jimmy Butler in terms of just being like a pure dog so in ter- if the Clippers were looking for the Mavericks to hand them this series on a silver platter give it a maybe five game gentleman sweep they're mistaken they are I mean like you said they're you know they're following Luca's lead and Luca's not going to back down you know he showed that the other day when he got into to Montrez's face, you know, and Montrez is known as a dog in the league. And he told him to stop flopping. Yeah, which was ironic, you know, of Luca to say. But <laughs> these, like you said, these guys aren't going to back down. And you know, Dallas is—they're not one of the—they're one of the worst defensive teams in the league. But you know, and you you saw that with the uh, the play before before Luca shot when Kawhi drove and you know Clemmer uh, was was uh, sagging too far off Morris in the corner and he hits a three, you know, good defensive teams and good defensive players will, will know when to, when to sag off a little bit and then kind of recover, but they get stops, you know, I guess when they need to. And, you know, for, for Clippers, they're supposed to be a lot better defensively and they're not. And if you're struggling, I mean, to guard a team like this, like it's only going to get harder as you get deeper into the postseason. For the Mavericks, the thing is, they're not just missing Porzingis. They're also missing uh, Jalen Brunson and Dwight Powell. They're also missing Willie Cauley-Stein. They're missing – in this game in particular, they were missing – Next man up, man. Next man up. It's that next man up mentality. And in terms of, like, that dog mentality we were talking about in this Mavericks team as a whole, 
someone that I didn't really kind of expect to have like that little edge to him until he hit a little tough little layup was a uh, Seth Curry. Uh, he has some <laughs> has some ch- some choice words for uh, Paul George. There's a little uh, there's some history there that extends beyond it was the. A little personal. It was a little. It's a little personal for those. That, uh, do you want to explain that uh, that little personal history? So, for those who don't know, Paul George's ex-girlfriend, he he did her dirty um, by cheat. I think she he cheated on her. Little scarlet letter type thing with a, with a stripper, and who is who is now. Um, his baby mama, but his ex-girlfriend now happens to be Seth Curry's wife. And the cherry on top, that woman is Doc Rivers' daughter, who is Paul George's coach. Mind blown. It, I feel like it's only appropriate that TNT like broadcasts a majority of these games. Like, what's TNT's like mantra? It's like we know drama, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I think we were- it is, yeah. I think we were talking about in the the group chat how like Contavious Caldwell Pope had, he was on like house arrest and I think it was like 2018 and that wasn't even like a top 10 storyline for the season like that's just how you know that <laughs> the NBA is consistently like on another level when it comes to like you got Major League Baseball like the other hand they're like talking about some like they're having their whole thing with like Fernando Tatis Jr. swinging on three no counts. And I made up the point that, like, if something of that, like, if something like that happened in the NBA, that would be like the fifth, like, a, not even a top fifty storyline. That's that's how deep the NBA goes in terms of the drama. Yeah, NBA. Like, I feel there's not too many un- unwritten rules. I feel like in the NBA, like the biggest one I could think of is if you're up at the end of a game by like a reasonable amount, you don't shoot the ball. You know, you don't try to score, especially if it's like the last possession of the game. Like, you just dribble out the clock. And then there's certain things when like. You know, when guys are going up for a dunk or a layup and you're, you never undercut them or put your hands on them or anything. It was like the only things I can really think of. Yeah, I remember, I think it was the, the Warriors' first year uh, during the KD era, and I think JaVale took like a corner three. And I remember the Washington Wizards were like hella upset with him. And it was like, I think it was like an end of the shot clock situation too. And I was like, that's the only instance when I can think of like an unwritten rule. I remember when like Nicholas Batum, like he threw up like a half court shot. And like, uh, that I don't was think BS, he, yeah. I don't think he tried to get it on purpose, but like he ended up getting the triple double. Nah, he, he was trying to get the triple double, dude. <laughs> I remember that. And he did that against the, the wrong team, which was the Spurs, like the most classiest team in the NBA. I think he was even like when it went in, he kind of like put his hands on his head. He was like, oh, no, like I shouldn't have done that. Like this is the wrong team to do it to. Yeah, Tim Duncan was hot. Remember that? <laughs> the look on his face said everything. If you get Tim Duncan hot, that's, not, that's how you know you're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But to transition to the Clipper side of things, for Luca to have a 21-point deficit to overcome, that means the Cl- that's like it's kind of the yin and yang. That means the Clippers blew a 21-point lead. They did that whole song and dance where they take their foot off the gas pedal. They kind of handle themselves as if they're three-peating as opposed to contending for their first championship. They got back to their old coasting tricks in game four, and it cost them. I feel as if it also cost them in game two. And it was funny, like, before this game, one of the things we were talking about was how in game three, they finally they finally kind of showed their true identity. There was like, it's like, okay, this is a team that likes to have that dog mentality that will rough you up on the defensive end. And then in game four, we see a reversion to, as I mentioned, just their old coasting tricks. I don't know if I, like, 
I, I've gone back and forth about whether I'm necessarily concerned about that, but just to see the Clippers kind of carry themselves as this kind of like multiple time champion, it is kind of a, a tired act. And it and is costing say, them too. Did you say multiple time champion? Talking about the Clippers? Yeah. For them to carry themselves in, in that fashion. The thing with the Clippers, man, is like, I feel like based on, you know, kind of what you're touching on what you're saying is that they think they're this, this, you know, one of the top teams in the NBA. And, you know, based on their record, obviously they are and their personnel, but like they still have a lot of chemistry things they have to work out. And maybe they, maybe they didn't come into the series respecting the Mavericks enough, you know, because they, they look at the guys they have on the team. They got a bunch of dogs on that team. They do, you know, with, with Pat Bev, with Lou Will, Montrez, um, Kawhi, even though he doesn't act like it, he still plays like one, you know, and they just thought they were probably going to run over this team like nothing, you know, thinking they get into Luca's head, they can throw multiple bodies at him. And now they're on the, on the fringe of a, at least a six game series and possibly even seven. You know, there's a very good chance this series could go seven. And, you know, not to get off topic, but, like, that's why when this this whole trade went down last summer, you know, when the Clippers, first they signed Kawhi, and then, boom, minutes later, it's like Woj announces they traded for Paul George. Everyone was just – everyone was surprised for sure, including myself, you know, when that trade happened, the Paul George one. And people were automatically saying, oh, this this team is going to be the best team in the NBA. And – my initial thought was it looks good on paper. They have a lot of good players, but how are, Ka- how are Kawhi and Paul George going to mesh with each other? Cause they have very, very similar playing styles in regards to like one-on-one play. Um, you know, Kawhi likes to get to mid range a little bit more, whereas Paul George shoots more threes, but like, are they just going to trade one-on-one possessions, you know, every other, every other time down the court, like how is this going to work? So, you know, but then a, a team like, team like the Lakers, AD and LeBron, they complement each other so well. And I think that's what the, the Clippers have yet to figure out is how are these guys going to fit together? Who's going to be our closing go- closing unit, you know, when we're trying to close out games? Because I'll tell you what, they can't have Reggie Jackson on the court anymore, defensively at least. Offensively, yeah, the guy can knock down shots. He can he can make plays. But I don't know why Montrez Harrell wasn't on the court instead of him. Let's see, I don't know, did he foul out at that point? Or was just, was that just like a blunder by Doc Rivers? I actually don't remember. I just remember him not being on the floor in those last couple of minutes. I think what they wanted to do, considering how dominant Luca was down the stretch and how dominant he proved to be in the overtime, was they just wanted to have switchability with whoever set a screen for Luca, just have the ability to switch on him, which is kind of how they got into the whole Reggie Jackson situation in the first place. I would say for me, though, I'm not as concerned about on like on the offensive side of things as I am on the de- the defensive end of things. Now, as we mentioned, the Clippers, they have like versatile wing defenders who can like, when you go name for name, player for player for defender for defender, arguably the best defense in the entire NBA, especially when you consider that they have that uh, capacity to potentially match with a big lineup, potentially have the capacity to match with a smaller lineup. But the biggest thing for me was it was just them continuing to let the foot off the gas pedal. Like offense, like, yeah, offense can come and go. You can have your hot streaks. You can have your cold streaks. But the one thing that can remain consistent 
is the effort that you put forth on the defensive end of the floor. And as we saw in like the first five minutes of game one, how Luca had like five turnovers, like they definitely have like, it's, it's not a question of whether or not they have the capacity to be, be physical with Luca or to constantly make the rotations they need to rotate when Luca drives and dishes. It's more so a question of whether they can consistently put forth that effort for 48 minutes. And they did for about the first 16 minutes of the game. And when they did it, they got out to a huge lead. And it kind of reminds me of how the Warriors in last year's first round against the Clippers, obviously not the same Clippers that they're um, that are on the floor right now, but it felt like the Warriors could have had an easy 4-0 sweep of that team. And what ended up happening is that Clipper team ends up taking the Warriors to six. And then you start asking these questions of when Durant gets injured, it's how much of that was a wear and tear issue. Could this have been avoided if they just handled their business in the first four games of that series? And considering how much, how great of lengths the Clippers have gone to ensure that Kawhi and Paul George, in particular Kawhi, remain healthy for the stretch drive, to have them play additional games when they could have easily just handled their business and ensured that this was like a, maybe a gentleman sweep, if not a 4-0 sweep. And that's not to say, I don't want to undermine the Mavericks in that sense, but there's just this lingering feeling where I feel as if this, there's like a self-destructive element with the Clippers where because they want to coast, because they want to act like champions, because they want to act like it's going to be easy, they now find themselves tied up in a series as, as you mentioned, could go to seven games, which whether or not it bodes bad for the next round, that's a whole nother discussion, but it's just the fact that these guys are going to have the additional wear and tear on their bodies. Yeah. And each game, each extra game you play, it, it makes a difference, you know, in regards to the, to the rest and the wear and tear on your body. And also from the, the mental aspect, you know, cause a game like this, like you said, they were up 21 points and they should have closed this game out, but they didn't. And, not only does it take a, a toll on your body, but you start as a player and maybe as a team, each guy starts thinking about like, now we like, we should have had that game. We should be up three, one and we could have, and then we could have just closed that out next game. And this goes from being maybe a five game series to now at least a six game series with it being tied to two. And it's only going to get harder from here if you're the Clippers and, you know, a big part of, their, uh, their struggle so far, you know, we have to talk about Paul George or or playoff P or as I like to call him, pathetic P because his numbers have been so bad. You know, he had the he had the good first game where he dropped like 25 or 27 points. And since then, I think it's been like, what, 14, 11, and then seven points, you know, uh, for a guy who self-proclaimed himself as playoff P, even though, you know, the last time he's done anything, anything worth noting in the postseason was uh, when – probably when he was with the Pacers, you know, and he took on the heat and he came within one game of, uh, of making the finals. That's the closest he's gotten, the best he's done. And that was a great run, but he hasn't done anything since then. You know, you couldn't, you got bounced in the first round um, last year with the Thunder, you know, at the buzzer in a game where he, he had a very abysmal shooting, shooting effort too in that final game. And now here you are, you know, uh, in your first series and you're already struggling. I think it was after yeah it was after today's game where he said uh, to be honest in hindsight if I shot the ball better this series would be different and you alluded to the numbers and to give you the particular uh, the specifics in games two 
three and four. He hasn't cracked the 20-point threshold. He's averaged 11.3 points, shot 21.3% from the field. Not from three, from the field, and 16% from deep. And I've seen a lot of people on Twitter calling him Pandemic P just because of the, the nature of the world that we live in and the nature of how he's been playing. And as you mentioned, like this, is, this isn't anything new in terms of what we've seen. We've seen him have bad performances in the playoffs. Obviously, back in 2017, they had that whole Gatorade commercial with the, the no OT tonight, the irony being when it comes to the playoffs in terms of him being a consistent performer, it's very few and far between. Yeah, they're definitely going to need him, you know, because as we talked, you know, we touched on is, you know, Kawhi is, Kawhi has become infamous, right, for this being the load management guy over the past couple seasons. You know, ever since he made his comments about how the Spurs mishandled his, his injury or whatever, started to take games off. And, you know, it worked for him last season. Obviously, he sat out like 20 games and ended up winning the finals. And so he was well rested. But Kawhi wanted to play with Paul George because he liked, he liked Paul George's game and he respects, he respects Paul. And he saw that as a guy that, you know, him and I can do a lot of damage together. So with that being said, Kawhi doesn't want to have to be the one every single time bailing them out, you know, because you can't go every single possession through Kawhi. You know, there's, you gotta, there's, there's little rest periods in between, right, in between possessions where maybe Kawhi gets a couple, couple looks coming down and then the next time it's, it's Paul George or maybe Lou Will or they go through Trez if he has a mismatch or whatever it is. So if, if Paul George isn't clicking, I mean, this series has already gone long, but if they even make it to the next, to the next round, you know, and depending on who they're playing, whether it's Denver or Utah, like things will get tough. And we already know Utah has a Paul George stopper and Joe Ingles. So if, if Paul George isn't, isn't going, I mean, this could be an early out for, for the Clippers. They, they 100% need him to be at his peak, whatever, whatever that peak is. And if Kawhi is having to carry that load on the offensive end, that's going to have an inverse effect on the defensive end. Like, as we saw, like, he had a willingness to have that matchup with Luka, to will, have that willingness to take him on in those isolation situations. So if we get to a situation where Kawhi is going to have to kind of make up for Paul George's lack of production – then what you see is him having to him having less energy to exert on the defensive end. It's going to be taxing. I just think I think we're both in agreement when I say this. I think that uh, if you if as someone that proclaimed your name to be playoff P and as someone that has not uh, stepped up to that level, stay off the socials. Just delete Instagram for the <laughs> the foreseeable yeah, just, future. Just, it's not a good look. Stop talking and start hooping. Simple. What do you care about is Snapchat and Instagram, ready for the game. But what do you do in the game? What do you do in the game? You don't do nothing. You don't do nothing, blood. But before the Clippers and Mavericks could have the basketball version of the Thriller in Manila, or maybe as I say, the Rumble in the Bubble, uh, the Boston Celtics, as I mentioned, finish off their 4-0 sweep of the Philadelphia 76ers. And from the perspective of the Sixers, to quote producer extraordinaire Kenny Beats, this episode wasn't supposed to go like this. this. This episode is not supposed to go like this. The regular season wasn't supposed to go down the way it did, and the playoffs especially weren't supposed to go down the way they did. The team that many thought would, at the very minimum, make the Eastern Conference Finals are taking an early vacation to Cancun, and Brett Brown in particular may be taking a vacation to the unemployment lot. Now, I know that Ben Simmons was injured. I know that did play a part in, this, in the 76ers' 
losing the series, but to get swept and not only get swept, but in the fashion that they did, a lot of poor body language all around, a lot of frustration all around. I think it's safe to say that by the time game one of the 2020-2021 season rolls around, this organization, whether it's the front office, whether it's the coaching staff, or whether it's the personnel, is going to be looking a lot different. 100%, you know, and as in regards to them getting swept, I, I'm not surprised whatsoever. You know, like you said, once Ben Simmons went out, it was, it was inevitable. And even if they had him on the court, they maybe – this is maybe a six-game series, but I still think Boston would have came out on top. But there's – you know, it starts from the top down. They got to look at the top of the organization. And with that, I mean Elton Brand. You know, he's the one who kind of orchestrated – you know, some of these moves over the past few years and, you know, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris and Al Horford are all getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, you know, for the lack of production you're getting from those three guys who were supposed to make up this, you know, ultimate starting five alongside Ben Simmons and Embiid. Tobias Harris hit like one, one three-pointer, I think in this, in this four game series. And that was today. And the guy's making $36 million a year. Josh Richardson, you know, he's, uh, he's supposed to be a 3 and D guy. You know, that's what he was – he kind of became known for at, in Miami, although he was, a, he was a better scorer when he was in Miami. Um, but he was, he was at times on Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and I don't remember anything but the two guys both cooking. Cooking not just him, but the whole, the whole Philly defense. And so I think if they're going to make some moves, it might need to start with – getting a new general manager. And then obviously Brett Brown will likely be let go within these next few days. And then it's like, where do they go from here in regards to coaching? You know, I don't think they should break up the Embiid and Simmons combo yet. I think they should bring in a new GM, you know, hire a new coach and then see how this coach does in the one year with the, with the roster. And I also think they should try to move two of the three guys I mentioned in Horford, Richardson and Harris, you know, Try to move two of those three guys, especially Horford, and the other the other guy can be honestly it doesn't matter whichever one you I guess they feel like keeping. But they got four picks in this draft, you know, package Horford in a pick and maybe package Richardson in a pick, and see if you can bring in um, you know some better three and D players or consistent shooters because when you're playing it with with the Simmons and Embiid, you need shooting around those guys, and so they got a, a lot of a lot of work to do this off season. I don't know if you saw the stat, but Markel Fultz in these playoffs has hit, I think, three three-pointers. And I saw that, yeah. <laughs> in the series, Tobias Harris and Al Horford combined for two three-pointers, which kind of feels like a little bit of an element of poetic justice considering how Markel Fultz's tenure in Philadelphia went. I also just want to note that I think in every game – this is like a, a side tangent, but in every game, uh, Josh Richardson was kind of being dis- disrespected on the broadcast because – at least one announcer would call him Jason Richardson. Like every, it happened once every game. He was kind of getting that, like, it kind of felt like the Giannis treatment where like, you weren't good enough for me to like, learn how to say your name. It kind of felt like that a little bit, a little bit of disrespect on the broadcaster's part. I'd say that's more disrespect to Jason Richardson. (laughs) (laughs) Jay Rich, former Philadelphia 76er, uh, 76ers legend, maybe. Oh yeah. (laughs) depending on how you look at it but I don't know if you caught the the back end of the game like in like the last two minutes of the game but Doris Burke 
And this is a side note. I love Doris Burke as she's great. a color commentator. She's so good. Mark Jones and Doris Burke need to get on at least one finals game at some point in time. They are such a good combination. But Mark, Doris, Mark Jones low-key corny, though. Just a, a little bit. What did he say? Uh, what, I forgot what game it was, but he was like, I got the um, something on the whip. He said, yeah, he'd, be dropping, he'd be dropping lines like, Oh, Donovan Mitchell is in his bag. Like, just trying to, you know, he's trying to be hip and be young and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. For me, it works. I, there was the, uh, I like the, he's in the, the hotter than fish grease line. I like that line. And then there was the, he dropped, he was the one that dropped the Lebronto line. He has some, he has some good knowledge. I'll give him that. Like, he hits you with these random facts or things you might not have known before. So I, I like those. But he's a little corny, but I don't mind him and him and Doris do work together. But going back to Doris, I don't know if you saw like the last two minutes of this game, but she went in on the 76ers. I'll throw in the audio clip here if I could find it. But she went on in on Embiid saying that he had to do more. She went in on Elton Brand. She went in on Brett Brown. It was compl- – and on top of that, there was – she had a one-liner where I think it was – I forgot. might have been the third quarter. Al Horford had a bucket in the post kind of flexing his chest a little bit. And then she said, that's uh, pretty bold for someone that's averaging eight points in this series. There's a lot of cold bloodedness going all around for Doris Burke <laughs> in this series, but she's hundred percent right. I do. I am in agreement with you that I think before thinking about breaking up the combination of Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, I would try to see what you can do with a new front office and a new head coach at the helm and then go from there. Just considering just the potential that both of them have on the floor when they are both clicking, when that chemistry is there. But there is a part of me and like, I don't want to get too kind of, kind of, I I guess to say it in the word sensational at this point, but it kind of feels like the 76ers are approaching that territory if they're not already there in terms of being in like this weird basketball purgatory where given the contracts that they've signed this past off season, given how the roster has been constructed. If they want to get back to a place where they're going to have a viable roster going forward, that's conducive to consistent championship basketball year in and year out and being a contender, you're either going to need Tobias Harris, Al Horford and Josh Richardson to just dramatically change how that they've played over the course of this past year, or you're going to need to make some difficult moves or some difficult decisions. And the path to, for them getting to a championship based on how this past year's went based on how, the money works. It's a lot. It's, it's difficult to foresee. And before I throw it over you, I want to read off what their roster would have been on draft night. Had they done abs, had they done nothing but just draft Mikhail Bridges and not make any moves. Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, JJ Reddick, Bob Covington. I like to call him Bob because you know, you gotta, you gotta keep the Bob name alive. It's a dying name. Uh, Landry Shamit, Shake Milton, Dario Saric, Furkan Korkmaz, Rashawn Holmes, who developed into a double-double machine in Sacramento, TLC, Timofei Luwalu-Cabarro, who became a 3 and D specialist with Brooklyn, Markel Fultz, about $18 million in unused cap, and all their picks, including the one that became Matisse Thibel. I don't know about you, but that sounds more like a championship roster than the one that they currently have. It does, and this, this was before they made the trade, right, then, for Jimmy Butler? This was in. This was on draft night, twenty eighteen. This was. This is assuming they just drafted Mikael Bridges and didn't trade him to Phoenix for Zaire Smith. Who okay. side note, Zaire Smith has like. He, yeah, he's been he hasn't. Of, he hasn't uh, been around. 
Yeah, and then you got Mikael Bridges, who's starting to flourish in Phoenix. But, yeah, that does sound like a better roster, you know. And the, I think uh, Elton Brand got caught up in, in making home runs instead of, you know, doing getting trying to get some singles or trying to get some doubles. And he wanted to make all these splashes in free agency just because guys were available and also later on down the road, you know, because Jimmy Butler ended up leaving, you know, which as we – I don't know if you saw the report that supposedly that was because of Brett Brown and they didn't get along or something. And people were saying it was Brett Brown's fault, not Jimmy Butler's, but you know, Jimmy Butler leaves and Elton Brand's like, Hey, like I gotta, he's probably like, I need to do something. I got to make a big move. And he makes a couple big moves, you know, by the sign and trade with Jimmy Butler that brought Jason Richardson or sorry, now you're saying Jason Richardson that brought Josh Richardson over. And not only that, but, he gives Tobias Harris this fat contract and he gives a backup center an ex- absurdly, absurdly fat contract. You know, Aging backup center that. That, like you just said, just, you know, was averaging eight points a game. And my favorite Doris Burke line from the night was actually at the end of the game when she said, you know, Philly, this is kind of like a, Philly just needs this, needs this to be over, kind of like a bad date. You know, she said something like that, and it was just like a fire line. And the end of this game feels like a bad date. It is taking forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they that roster, like you mentioned, you know, a lot more shooters with JJ Redick, uh, Mikel Bridges, um, you know, the European guy you just mentioned as well. I forget his name. Um, yeah, you know, they had, that's what you need. You need shooting when, you, when you're playing with either a Ben Simmons or an Embiid. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine on Twitter and he said, if they do decide to move Embiid, they should, and they, and they build around Simmons, you can make it like a constructor roster, like a, as if Simmons is like a LeBron James, where you just surround them with a bunch of shooters, you know? Or if you build around Embiid, same thing. You just need shooters and Simmons obviously doesn't fit that, but they, they, can, they can maybe work that out in one season if they get the right, right coach, right GM and right personnel around them. And I have been infatuated by the idea of if you were, if the 76ers were to hypothetically move Embiid and you were to center the offense around Simmons, I wasn't even, I wasn't thinking about it from the perspective of LeBron. I was thinking about it from the perspective of like a Giannis light type situation. Obviously Ben Simmons isn't anywhere kind of near the same degree of scorer as Giannis, but just that, that idea of surrounding Simmons with four shooters, which opens up the paint for him to drive and attack. That sounds like an enticing idea that Philly could potentially explore. And since you've brought up the idea, we've discussed that, or we've kind of said that we think it would be a good idea for the 76ers to hold on to that tandem for at, at least one more year and just see how things would operate with a new head coach and potentially a new front office as well. But that's what we like. That's our ideal kind of situation. But given all of the rumors that have circulated in the past however many weeks with the Warriors getting that number two pick. And what are your kind of thoughts about what might actually happen to this future, uh, to the future of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid? I mean, there's, there is a very good chance that, you know, if they do, they do bring in a new GM, maybe this GM is already thinking, yeah, I I don't think it's going to work with these two guys from based on what I've seen. So maybe one of those guys, get moves this summer and 
maybe maybe a Joel Embiid ends up on the Warriors. Who knows? They'd have to they'd have to put together a crazy package to get him. Obviously, you know, based on what the Lakers gave up to get AD, and based on what the Clippers gave up to get Paul George. You know, Embiid would obviously demand a lot. So it's just it's going to come down to the GM and the coach the GM hires and what kind of system that coach wants to run. You know, if he wants to run a very up-tempo style, uh, style, style offense and style of play, then you build around Ben Simmons. If they want to, they want to go more focus on the half court and getting, um, you know, quality half court play, then you build around Embiid. So it's, it's, it's all going to come down to the preference of, of the GM and the coach and what the coach's philosophies are. So, I, I hope to see them stay together, and I think they will for at least one year. But I wouldn't be surprised if one of those guys is on the way out this offseason. You got Spencer Dinwiddie tweeting about the Warriors getting that number two pick, and you never know what these guys know and, like, who's telling them what. So when you see that when – like, when I saw that pop up, I'm, the cogs in my brain started working. I'm thinking, hmm, what, what does Dinwiddie pretend – what does the Bitcoin man himself know that uh, we may not know? But man, in turn, I don't think he – I don't think he knows nothing. I think he's he's just like he's probably looking at it like the way the rest of us did, where it's like you're like, damn, like the Warriors just came off. They're coming off five straight finals. Uh, you know, Clay's out, Steph goes out, Draymond misses misses some time, and now Clay has extra time to heal from that ACL injury, and Steph Steph is basically you know, some time off and Draymond too. And with all the extra mileage they put on their legs from playing, you know, five straight postseasons in the finals, you get you basically like a year off and it's extended. And on top of all that, a team that's already going to be back among the top four teams in the West next season, you just gave them a number two pick. And they acquired, I think they acquired a pick in the wig when they took Wiggins from Minnesota too. So, it's, this is one of those things where the rich get richer, and it's it's very it's going to be very interesting and very fun to see what the Warriors do with that pick. Uh, to pin a bow on uh, the Seventy Sixers portion of our conversation, I can't, I feel like both of us are kind of alluding to it, but only I, I feel like imagine if the Seventy Sixers had a very uh, forward thinking, methodical, analytically inclined general manager someone um someone's name that maybe rhymes with ham i don't know something like that maybe they if they had someone like that maybe they (laughs) they might be in a little better shape uh but if the 76ers are a team that have been dramatically falling short on their potential then the los angeles lakers that other team in los angeles are a squad that are kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum after a bit of a shaky start both within uh, the seeding games in the bubble as well as the blazers upsetting them in game one They've started to put things together. In game two, they blew the brakes off the Blazers. In game three, the Blazers put up more of a fight, but you had LeBron and Anthony Davis playing like the first team all NBAers they are. You had the meme god Alex Caruso manning the defense, as well as apparently Kyle Kuzma, who has like a, a defensive rating in the 70s, which is a shout out to shout out to the influencer himself. But what the, the question that I want to pose to you is we've kind of seen the duality of this Lakers team and for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but what have your main takeaways from this Lakers squad been through their first three games in the postseason? The biggest thing is that this team is, I think it's very, they're so locked in defensively. You know, you, you touched on that earlier, how um, how important that is. And, you know, 
they've been able to do that even you know despite despite not being able to to make shots all the time you know it's that's been one of the biggest things everyone's been talking about obviously is they don't have enough shooters or they don't have guys who can make shots outside of LeBron and AD consistently and you know which while that's true one thing that's never going to change is that this team gets after it on defense you know and we I think we'd see they could be even better defensively still and that starts with you know limiting limiting JaVale's JaVale McGee's time you know taking him out of the starting unit I think that's something that Vogel I don't know if he's considered it or thought about it at all but it's something I hope he's gonna have to do if they if they make it past this round and and play Houston you know because you can't play two bigs against a team like that um that moves the ball like they do but you know they uh they are guys who who get after it on defense Anthony Davis Kuzma like you said Caruso has been really good and that's what's going to carry them far especially when they're when their offense isn't clicking and you know in a game like last night where they miss almost 15 free throws um I think they knocked down like 33 percent of their threes which isn't bad but it's going to be the defense that carries them and when that team is rolling on offense you're going to see games like a game two where they blew out Portland by 30 points and they've been able to, to hold Portland I think right now to around 100 points a game um and Portland came into the into the postseason averaging over 120 so it speaks volumes you know and the difference between the good teams and the great teams is is always, always, always going to be their defense in the postseason. Yep, a, a hardworking, blue-collar city like Los Angeles. That's definitely where you want to see them <laughs> at the defensive end. Uh, but in terms of what you kind of uh, alluded to in terms of how they've been getting added on the defensive end, I think one of the main differentiating, and differentiating factors between this Clippers team and this Lakers team is that there's more of a necessity that the Clippers have, or the Lakers rather, have to consistently get at it on the defensive end because there's kind of this implicit acknowledgement that if they are to coast on the defensive end, then you can get into a situation where you have to really get into a firefight. And if you're, if the weapons that you have, this is supplement LeBron and AD are Danny Green, who has been struggling, Contavious uh, Caldwell Pope, who can have a 16-point game as easily as he can have a one-point game. Kyle, uh, Kyle Kuzma, who can at times be a, diff, be a bit of a wild card in terms of his uh, shot selection. Alex Caruso, who, while he is uh, a monster on the defensive end, isn't exactly someone you want to be relying on the offensive end of the floor. I think because of, those, because of that kind of implicit acknowledgement that it's, they don't have the same dearth of offensive weapons that other teams in the league do, it's this having to lock in on the defensive end in order to provide them with the best chance to win. And that's, and that's something that we've essentially seen in this first round against the Blazers. And a stat that I want to throw at you is that in the, the first nine, in their nine seeding games, the Blazers had an offensive rating of 122.5 in these three games against the Lakers that's created to 98. And I think the, the one sequence that really epitomizes their collective potential on the defensive end of the floor was down the stretch in the fourth quarter. I believe they had three blocks in one possession. I know that Gary Trent Jr. got blocked once. I think it was one of them was by Anthony Davis. I believe the other was by Danny Green. And I think Damian Lillard got blocked as well. And if you, and combining all of the, the wing defenders that they have, you have LeBron, Danny Green as well. And then you have some defensive minded bigs and Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard, when he decides to get after it, 
they're a scary defensive front. And one of the, I think the big thing, funny that I use that word, is that they have the potential to just like throw out these incredibly big lineups to where if you're going to drive in the paint, it's good luck to you. Like go ahead, drive in the paint just because they can easily have a lineup that's or Danny Green, LeBron, AD, and Dwight. That's also incredibly viable defensively. So it'll be interesting to see, like, as you mentioned, probably the next round when they get matched up against Houston and how they respond to Houston small ball and see how the defense that they've been playing against Portland can translate to the uniqueness of this Houston team. Yeah. It's, you know, with the Lakers, it's they're the only way they're going to lose games is if they, is if they shoot themselves in the foot, you know, and so far it's been, um, it's just been like the shooting, the shooting woes, but also sometimes uh, there was, there was moments in last night's game or a game three against Portland where they weren't, some of the guys weren't hustling back on defense, you know, and one of those guys who I noticed four times in the, in game three didn't get back on defense was their leader, LeBron James. And unfortunately, like, it's not something, it's not, it's not something new, you know, he, he'll turn the ball over and he doesn't get back or he like last in the, in game three, he took a, he took a three pointer up top and Melo was guarding him. He missed a shot. And then Melo gets a wide open dunk because LeBron doesn't get back. And those kind of things can't happen when you're the leader of the team and you know, the best player in the league, you gotta be, you gotta be the guy that sets the, sets the precedent. Not what just your, you know, what your vocal leadership, but what your, your play as well. Um, so it's, it's, you know, for the Lakers, it's going to be, if they're not trying, if they're not making shots, if they're not making free throws, they'll lose games, you know, but as long as they're, they continue to move the ball like to do, I think shots will fall. You know, I'd really like to see Vogel, um, like I said, go to go more toward like a small ball lineup, especially um, with, you know, his post-game comments. He said he wants to, he wants the tempo to pick up because when the team is running, especially with two bigs on the floor, he said it's, it's hard for Portland to keep up. Now, imagine if you have AD at the five and Kuz or Morris at the four, you can play an even faster, an even faster pace, you know, and the Lakers are one of the best, best teams in the league, you know, uh, an up-tempo offense. So I think Vogel's just got to continue to make adjustments. Maybe he doesn't want to show all his cards right now. You know, and if that's the case, then, hey, he's doing well, I guess. But, uh, you know, they need more small ball, I think, moving forward and, Hey, I don't know why he's not playing Dion. You know, he, he gave JR, JR Smith nine minutes last night. And JR just, he still kind of looks like lost at sometimes. I think he maybe he's nervous because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to mess up. But when LeBron's on the court, when, or when LeBron's off the court, it, it just makes sense to have Dion on, you know, a guy who can get his own shot. He can create for others and let him get in the groove. You know, um, I think Vogel needs to play him a little bit more. I guess what you're saying is that you're craving a little, a uh, little Philly cheese. Is that what you're saying? Cheese in my life, man. Come on. <laughs> but in terms of that idea of playing up tempo, like one of the biggest weaknesses that they can exploit is use of Nurkic, not necessarily from conditioning. That conditioning perspective. Like I think the Blazers played him or Terry Stotts played him 41 minutes last night and he was excellent in the seeding games, especially uh, in uh, against Memphis just to get into the playoffs. But he's still trying to work his way back into shape and he's played like in the seeding games is like what just nine games and if the Lakers are able to push the pace and make Nurkic's life essentially a living hell it's like 
the Blazers don't really have that many other big men that they can go on or they can uh, lean on. They have Hassan Whiteside. Especially with Collins out. Especially with Collins out, you have to rely on Hassan Whiteside, who uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Blocker, but not a good defender. Yeah, it's like I, whenever I hear him described as a great shot blocker, I'm kind of like, mm, this is a this is an instance where the stats don't tell the full story. You kind of have to look at how he actually roams around the paint. Mm-hmm. You have Wenyan Gabriel who can provide a spark plug at times, but not necessarily someone you would want to rely for big minutes at the five. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Zach Collins is out for the remainder of the year. So if you can push the pace and you can make Nurkic have to keep up with whoever is at the five, that's an easy way that you can expose the Blazers in that certain arena of the game. But you touched on LeBron, and for me, I wouldn't say I was necessarily – I don't think concern was the right word, but for me, in the first two games of the series, it felt as if LeBron was – he was getting his numbers. He was getting double-digit assists. He was getting double-digit rebounds. But in terms of leaving his imprint on the game, in terms of truly asserting himself offensively, I felt as if in the first two games of the series, I, I'm not going to say he, he wasn't there entirely, but in terms of legitimately leaving his imprint on the game, that element was missing. And I feel like there was an element of him used to in the first round, like going back to his days in the Eastern Conference, he doesn't have to pip, uh, put forth his best effort just because of the quality of competition. But in game three, we just saw him truly decide to turn on. He drops 38, 12, and 8. And, you know, he has that that little snarl. I know that some people were kind of comparing it to the 2012 game sick against Boston. I don't think it was – I don't think it was the, the same vein. A lot of different circumstances there. But I think that considering what we mentioned, how the Lakers don't have – this wide variety of offensive weapons in the same way that other teams they face do have, I think we're going to need to see LeBron consistently asserting himself on the offensive end. I mean, the thing with LeBron is like he can, obviously we know he can turn it on whenever he wants to, as we saw in game three. And there's going to be times or games where he, or even like stretches within games where he's going to have to be more proactive, like you said, or more aggressive, you know, like I was saying. But we look at game two, LeBron had 10 points in that game. Uh, I think he recorded a triple-double, and they won by 30 points. You know, and it's as – if you're, like, a fan of a, a team, whether it's a Lakers or not, that should be something you're, that stands out to you because you're the best player in the league. You know, uh, best – he's while well, he is the best player on the Lakers, you know, Anthony Davis has obviously been their best player this year. Um but the guy only had to score 10 points and the team won by 30 points. So I think it's going to be a game by game type of thing. Last night wow. he was, he was a bit more aggressive for whatever reason. And he was looking for a shot more. You know, I think if him and AD knock down more, you know, and the team knocks down more free throws in the first half, maybe LeBron doesn't have to be as aggressive. Um, and then, I mean, he carried the first half and AD did the work in the third quarter and then, you know, for the first half of the fourth as well. So I think it's going to be, um, AD has to be the main guy who's bringing it every single night, you know, because he is in his prime. He is young. No one, no one in the West or in the league for that matter can really, really guard him, you know, and he's going to have favorable matchups this series, the next series with Houston um, if let's just say the Clippers end up making it to the conference finals, then he's going to have favorable matchups there. Even if for, let's just say Utah gets there. We saw what, we saw what AD is capable of doing to 
the fake defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert. You know, he put That's up numbers right. on him. So there's there's no guy that can really stop him. And he's going to be the guy that can bring it every night or should be. But when LeBron's doing it too, that's when it's scary for the rest of the teams and for the rest of the league. If the Lakers and the Rockets meet in these semis, and that's kind of how it's uh, gearing up a potential. Well, you never know. We we both. I'll say we both predicted Thunder in six. That that's potentially still in play. Yeah, I take that back. Oh, you take it? <laughs> no, uh, you gotta you gotta you gotta be firm in your beliefs. No, I'll I'll, I'll be firm in that. I'll take that L and I'll file it in my taxes because I. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely underestimated um, the superstar power of, of James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And Westbrook's not even playing right now. So that, that speaks volumes. But if the, if the Rockets and the Lakers end up meeting in the semis, which is how it's shaping up to be, uh, Anthony Davis versus uh, P.J. Tucker at the, at the five, that's going <laughs> to... You know, P.J. Tucker, I got a lot of respect for him. He is, while he is undersized, he definitely he has the strength of a of a true center he's one of the strongest guys in the league and he knows how to really center his lower his lower body and use his strength to his advantage you know but ad is a he's not really a back to the basket type of guy he's more of a face-up guy and that's where pj tucker will get exploited you know because anthony davis can just shoot over him and that'll pay dividends as as long as mcgee's not starting in that series it should be I think the Lakers win in no more than six, but that could even be like a five-game series as well. So we're at about the hour mark, and unfortunately we don't have all the time in the world to get super in-depth on every team in the playoffs. But before we bounce up on out of here, I do want to hit on a couple of teams. And I want to start with the team that you just mentioned, uh, the Utah Jazz. In the middle of us recording, they went up 3-1 on the Denver Nuggets, the Denver Nuggets, uh, Nuggets being three-seed. And... I want to center this little discussion that we have on Denver rather than Utah and pose to you the question. I think Chris Weber said in the broadcast that Denver is like that super, they're a super talented team that doesn't get respect in the sense of them being true contenders. So the question that I want to pose to you are, do you think that the Nuggets are paper tigers, that they are this team that can rack up wins in the regular season but when it comes to the postseason, it's just ultimately, given the way that their roster is constructed, not going to be happening for them. It's, it's kind of tough to say because last year they got so close to making the conference, the Western Conference Finals, right? They went to Game 7 and lost in a, in a thriller to Portland. And, you know, Portland obviously gets swept by the Warriors. And who knows, who knows what Denver could have done against that Warriors team. You know, because Jokic probably would have dominated that series and it would have made things interesting. But, you know, I honestly had – I had Denver winning this series and I'm genuinely surprised. You know, they squeezed by in the first game, you know, and after Donovan Mitchell drops an absurd 57 and then they lose game two and Mike Conley still hasn't played. And Mike Conley comes back for game three. First game goes ballistic and – I don't know, Denver, they had so much talent. Like you said, on paper, they, they look great and they have so many guys, you know. And they are missing a couple key pieces, Will Barton and Gary Harris, right? Two of their, their rotation players who contribute, especially on the defensive end, and you know, which is a factor, of course. But it's also, like we said earlier, it's a next man up, next man up mentality, next man up league. And, you know, if you're missing guys, other guys got to step up. And Denver is a team that has depth and, 
they're just not getting it done. And I think I think part of that to me, like a guy like Jamal Murray is so so overrated. I think he's just been he's been very inconsistent in the playoffs, you know, through his first few years. And they could they might have to look at some roster shakeups too this off season, you know, if they lose this series and the way they're down right now, three one, it looks like that game, that series could be over next game. As you mentioned, the like the Nuggets, they are without Gary Harris, they are without Will Barton, but Utah is also without Bohan Bogdanovich, and he's a twenty point per game scorer. They were out, uh, they were without Mike Conley for the first two games of the series. That could have been an opportunity for the Nuggets to really assert themselves. But in game two, they get the uh, the brakes blown off of them. And you mentioned Jamal Murray. It's it's been like kind of set. Like it's it's the what's the expression? Like it's kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde hack act with Jamal Murray. That's one of the things that I feel is, is, is if is ultimately inhibiting their ability to take that next step as a team. They make reference to this potential big three with Jokic, Murray and Michael Porter Jr. If Michael Porter Jr. can uh, stay on the court long enough because of his defense liabilities. But I kind of, there's, there's a part of me that kind of scoffs whenever they're like Murray and Jokic are, named in that same vein just because on a nightly basis you don't know which Jamal Murray you're gonna get you might get the Jamal Murray that's hyper aggressive like he was in game one trading buckets with Donovan Mitchell or you might get the Jamal Murray in games two and three who was making a very minimal impact on the offensive end of the floor and is not exactly a defensive stalwart to make up for it on the other end so if and potentially when uh, Denver gets bounced up out of the playoffs it'll be interesting to see what they do this upcoming offseason, whether they stick to their guns and just see what happens with a fully healthy Michael Porter Jr. in the rotation, or if, as you mentioned, they decide to potentially start um, seeking to shake things up and see who they can pair uh, with Jokic, uh, transcendent talent. And speaking of a transcendent talent, the last team that I want to get to tonight, the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, they did drop game one to the Orlando Magic in a blowout fashion, but they've rebounded. They won games two and three. Now, before the playoffs, Giannis did make the comment that he was frustrated with where the team was at, with how they were playing. And even up, even though they are up two games to one in this series, and they're probably going to handle uh, the Orlando Magic in five games, there's like this general, for me, I, I know that the word like vibe gets like overused to death, but it's just the general vibe with the team and how they've been playing. It doesn't encourage me in the same way, or I'm, I'm more concerned than that of like a Clippers team or of a Lakers team just because so many things have to fall into place, particularly with the way that Chris Middleton has been playing in this series far from his all-star form. So the last question that I want to pose to you uh, in the, for this episode is, are you concerned about the Milwaukee Bucks at all? Or is this kind of just uh, they're going to turn it on in the next round with whoever they may face? I think there is, for me, there is some concern because you know, the first game, I guess it was whatever. It was a fluke. You know, they should have lost it, but they did. It happened. And they've since then, they've responded. But, you know, Giannis has been Giannis. Um, but Chris Middleton, you know, a guy who people have been hyping up this season. And I think he was a first-time All-Star. He, he was on the fringe of making the 50-40-90 club. I don't know if he hit it, but he was pretty damn close. And there's some people who are even considering him for an all-NBA position, you know, and I wasn't one of those guys, but I do think he, 
he's a guy who's been underrated. You know, he's the second best player on the second best team in the league, you know, record-wise at least. But there's got to be some concern for them, you know, because some of their bench guys, you know, like Dante DiVincenzo are um, kind of inconsistent. Pat Connaughton a little bit inconsistent. Um, you know, Robin Lopez plays well for them, and he's stretched. He's about, he's um, expanded his game, being able to knock down threes. Um, you know, but even a guy like Eric Bledsoe kind of, you know, sometimes he's there and sometimes he's, he struggles. So if they – this. When you're when you're a one seed and you're playing a team like the Magic, you know this is not like the Lakers who are playing Portland team that's really good. When you're a team like the Bucks and you're playing the Magic, you gotta. This is where you kind of get things, get the bad habits out of your system, work on your. If you're Middleton, you know try to find your shot and you know not just don't force don't force up shots, but take good shots, good quality shots, and let the, you know let your buckets come to you. And they have two more games, you know, if they if they if they want to finish this in five, they have two more games to kind of prep themselves because, you know, next series, man, you know, assuming Miami finishes it off, Miami's going to give them some trouble. And I think people are under undervaluing how good of a coach Eric Spolstra is and how good of a roster Pat Riley is constructed down there in South Beach, you know, uh, they can give this team some trouble. They got a couple guys they can throw at Giannis with uh, Jimmy Butler, with uh, Bam Adebayo. They got plenty of shooters, as we know, with um, Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Jay Crowder can knock down shots, Goran Dragic can knock down shots, Kelly Olynyk can knock down shots. And they have veterans. They got Jimmy Butler, they got Dragic, they got Andre Godala. You know, they have – they kind of have everything a team needs for the makings of a, of a championship run. You know, and if Miami doesn't if, – sorry, if Milwaukee doesn't get their act together in these next couple games, they're going to struggle, struggle mightily against the Miami Heat. And I hate to kind of sound like an old head, but in terms of, like, Miami, not only do they have that array of defenders, not only do they have the shooters, not only do they have veterans, but they some dogs. That's the – like, Jimmy Butler yeah, – They like, got dogs. Like, this entire – like, this in, like the entire Miami-Indiana series was kind of revolving around that individual matchup between Jimmy Butler and TJ Warren. And Jimmy Butler has just feasted on the opportunity to defend TJ Warren. And, like, <laughs> there have, there has not been a shortage of opportunities where Jimmy Butler has picked his pocket and been happy to do so. But Miami's a very – it's a bad matchup for Milwaukee. And – a lot of what Wil- uh, Milwaukee does is centered around Giannis, particularly on his ability to drive in on the on Bledsoe, on the Lopez, on Brooke Lopez, on Middleton's ability to knock down open shots. So if they're not knocking down open shots, then that gives the defense the opportunity to pack the paint more and form the, uh, as Stan Van Gundy likes to say, form a wall, <laughs> the wall again around Giannis. And I'll just to 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 veer back to the Magic real quick you got to realize they're also doing this without Jonathan Isaac and without Mo Bamba, like two guys who hypothetically would help in terms of forming said wall uh, against Giannis. So, and Aaron Gordon. And Aaron Gordon as well. So Shout out San Jose. San Jose alum. <laughs> and he was he got a, he had, he had a bad little stretch of luck there when he uh, went to, went to Cal, got a little upset when he, he came down to the bears. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I, I will see in terms of, uh, how Milwaukee will respond not only how as they finish up uh, this series 
against the Orlando Magic, but see how they respond to facing a team of dogs, a team of rugged defenders in Miami. And I guess we'll see how everything else kind of develops. We'll see how the Clippers respond to this 21 point, to blowing the 21 point lead. We'll see how the Lakers respond and if they finish off the Blazers, the Nuggets, the Jazz, all that stuff. But until next time, Splash Considerations, Justice De Los Santos, Sandeep Chandok. Peace, y'all.